Today, I'm going to talk about what is a controversial subject. And I felt that the Lord um, has wanted me to talk about it. I scheduled it some time ago because I know a little bit about it experientially and really heritage um, has shown me uh, some of the path that I'll share with you today, just being raised in a church where the Spirit of God is allowed to move. I want to talk to you today about the beauty of a prayer language or tongues, as some people call it. Now, what is that? First of all, let me just say, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. We'll read about it in the Bible, where maybe you've never heard it before, but uh, there's a personal and a public use of that gift for the corporate body. But, but you'd hear someone speak and you wouldn't know the language. The Bible says it can be a tongue of men, which means a known language to someone, but probably not the, one who's in the, the ones who are in the building, or tongue of angels, it says. It mean, can be completely unknown to men, but God uses it. It might sound something like Latin to you, because you don't know what Latin is, right? It just wouldn't make sense. And yet the Lord uses that somehow. And I want to talk about that today. It used to be that this gift was overhyped in the church, and there was some problem and abuse. And so what happened is people kind of just put the clamps on it, and now we've just started to ignore it, right? Because you know how it works when the pendulum swings too far, People want to swing it back and they swing it back too far the next time and not back to the place of balance. I'd like to talk to you about the place of balance with these things that are in the word. Because I believe this, tongues are way better than their reputation today. And we'll talk about that. 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And by the way, I'm talking about prophecy next week. And don't forbid speaking in tongues. Hmm, interesting. Paul, God, and the inspired word of God said, don't forbid this. Be sure that everything is done, it says, though, properly and in order. And there's the balance, you know. People can't just do whatever they want to do. There has to be balance when we come together in public meetings, and it has to be decent and in order. You know, ignoring this in the Bible, because it's all through the New Testament, we'll see it today because it's been abused, would be kind of like saying, I saw a terrible car accident one day, and I've decided I'm never going to drive a car again because of the terrible things that can happen. Well, the problem really wasn't the automobile or the vehicle, was it? What was the problem? The problem with a reckless driver is the driver themselves. And I don't want this vehicle, this expression, this beauty of what the Lord's given us to be totally clamped away in a storage closet because somebody abused it before. Do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? I don't think we should. So here are three important things to remember about speaking in tongues or a prayer language, the beauty of a prayer language. And the first is this. Tongues have been misused, abused, and misunderstood. I'm with you if you think they've been abused. I've seen it before, and I'll speak to that in just a moment. We see in Corinthians that Paul starts to talk to the Corinthian church, or Corinth, because they started to overinflate the use of this gift of tongues. They're out of line. Now, I want you to remember that the church in those days, they didn't have, uh, you know, large gatherings in a bunch of different places. They'd meet in the temple courtyards all together, but their churches were in their homes predominantly. So in those homes, people were just all speaking in tongues and taking over and they weren't honoring leaders in the homes and they were out of line and Corinth had messed up. They were taking a good thing that God had given by his spirit and they were abusing it. And you may have seen that too. 
Maybe you haven't seen anything, but you've been taught against this, that it's just bad and it's, it's, it's be careful and, you know, it's of the devil. I've even heard that before. Well, I believe uh, the devil could, could, could warp things and make them look bad. And I believe the devil can even do something false in this area. But there is a true, a real, and a pure use of the gifts that's in the Bible. And Paul wasn't saying, don't do this at all, because he said, forbid not. He said, I wish you all spoke in tongues. That's what Paul said in the Bible, the inspired word of God. But what he was saying is, hey, you're out of whack. You're out of balance. And, and let's just admit it. We've, some of us have seen that before. And we know that that can be true. So Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now about spiritual gifts, and this is one of them he's speaking of, that I'm speaking of today. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. So that's why we're gonna look at it today so we're not ignorant and we can see what the Bible says about it. The truth is most churches are ignoring this, right? They're not talking about it because it's too controversial. Well, you know, since I didn't wanna be a preacher in the first place, right? I love it now. But when I was young, I did not want to be a pastor. And I was feeling this call, I'm feeling compelled and I was kind of like Jonah on the run for a while. I just saying, please, no, not me. And, but when I surrendered, I surrendered everything. I mean, that was part of the deal is I was counting the cost. That's why I wasn't sure. And when I said yes to God and what he called me to do, I said yes to no money ever if that's what he wanted. I thought about it at 19 years old. I really did. I thought I'm not gonna have anything. It's been better than I thought. But I said yes to saying whatever's in his word without fear or favor to people. If it's true and it's, and, and it's full of grace and truth, then, then, then I said, I, I, I don't want to skip the hard parts. So part of my commitment coming to you today is I'm not going to skip the hard parts. And, uh, and, and I know the enemy would like to get this tucked away where it never shows up because it's something that the Lord has given that blesses his church. So the enemy doesn't want it coming forward. He'll even deceive the church sometimes to say, stay away. Well, so we don't want to be ignorant of it. And then 1 Corinthians 12 again, and now, dear brothers and sisters, I write you about the special abilities the Holy Spirit has given to each of us, for I must correct your misunderstanding. So it's appropriate to correct when things are out of line, right? When people aren't doing it right or, or taking over or feeling like they can own uh, things in a public setting. The Corinthians were operating in his gifts, but they were overemphasizing them. And that was a problem. And yet... 1 Corinthians 12, 31 says this, but eagerly desire the greater gifts and now I will show you the most excellent way. And, and, uh, and he, there, there he was speaking of allowing the manifestations of the spirit to move and this prayer language, this tongues that is spoken of in the Bible is one of those manifestations that he says eagerly desire. Well, God wants us to be hungry for more of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So if tongues is one of the manifestations of the Spirit, then we must understand it is given for common good for the church and for believers. Even though people mess up and people do stupid things and people abuse it, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because God says it's good. The church will profit. The individual will profit from even this manifestation of the Spirit. But this gift and all gifts are only to be used when they're practiced in a decent and orderly manner. Now I want to point out, and I'll make the distinguishment today between a public use of the gifts, which is a corporate use for the body, the setting, 
like this or even in our small groups. And a private sense for devotional language. Paul never ever criticized people using a prayer language in their devotional uh, prayer life. Uh, and I'll speak to that in, uh, more in a moment if you want to know more about what that means. What he criticized was what they were doing publicly by, by overemphasizing and causing a distraction instead of everybody keeping their eyes on Jesus. And he said in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all things be done decently and in order. <clears throat> now, I believe that one of the reasons the gifts have disappeared is that people come in and they start to take over and do whatever they want in a public setting and pastors won't pastor. It takes courage to allow the gifts to move, but it also takes courage to shut down what's not God. Because you can embarrass someone publicly. That's not, I would never be the goal and you'd want to stay away from that. But I remember years ago, I was a district youth director for the Assemblies of God. We had a couple thousand kids in a youth convention. <clears throat> we're in a service, we're going into prayer and I'm speaking something and some guy on the stage just starts hopping like a gazelle. A young guy, 18, hopped up on the stage and he's hopping around and nobody's watching me and where we're trying to go and <clears throat> lead the service, they're watching this kid. So I just walked over, he jumped up, and man, he had a good jump reach. He looked like 36 inches. And I caught him midstream on my shoulder, and I just carried him around to a back room, and I set him down. I said, you go for it, bro. We've got something we're doing out there, all right, right now. But if you want to worship, you go ahead and do it right here. He was distracting the service. And I think that at times we have to lead and have a pastor's heart to carefully show people the way, but, but, but we don't have the courage to allow it, and then we don't have the courage to pastor it. I remember one pastor many years ago, Pastor Glenn Cole, who just passed away this year. I love that man. He was such a man of God. He allowed the gifts and yet he pastored the gifts. One time he was up about to preach a service and a guy in the, near the front row, and this was a huge church, yelled out as loud as he could and it scared Pastor Glenn to death. He, he jumped about this high and he was, he was an older guy. And he got done and he said, thank you for that, Charlie, but good grief, did you have to scare us all to death? And, and I think it's appropriate to say, look, uh, don't just blurt out at times. And next week, I'm gonna talk about public use. Now, here's what I prefer, and I'll speak to it next week. In a public setting, I prefer prophecy. Why? Because the Bible says, but I prefer that you would prophesy in that setting. But it also says, forbid not. So we would allow that sort of thing, but an interpretation would have to come forward. Well, I'll speak to that a little bit more next week, but decently in, and in order, you know, when, when people think this is their thing to do from week to week in the church, I mean, I watched it in smaller churches. It'll, it'll keep people from coming. You know, Sister Fuddrucker or whatever her name is, you know, she, she, every week she gives a message in tongues and I've heard the dumbest things in interpretation in tongues. I mean, I'm for this, but I'm against it too. You know what I mean? Uh, because I heard one lady say once that she evidently was speaking in tongues and and given the interpretation, she said, Hickamo, see, I say unto thee, thou shalt watch the news only on night TV. It's like, wow, she even rhymed it. I mean, uh, I, I, that's probably not a bad idea, but I'm not sure that's what the Lord was saying in the moment. I heard someone else say, God is so upset at this church after the interpretation of the tongues that he's written Michelob over the door. They meant Ichabod, which means the Lord has departed. Michelob's a beer, but they meant well, right? <clears throat> I mean, and I heard one that was just so confusing. My mom and I just almost fell down laughing in the row. It was at a small church, and this guy was interpreting. He said, you have heard that two and two is four, but two and two is not four. Two and two is eight, thus saith the Lord. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Bad math is what God's into, I guess. I didn't even, I didn't even get it, you know? 
And sometimes it's just nonsense and we need to go to these people and go, look, that, that isn't working. You know, maybe you have a personal prayer language that you're just getting all excited about and hyped up about. And, 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 uh, and, and, and I, I believe in saying to people, I don't want you to use that gift every week and feel like you're the dominant tongue speaker, you know, because these are gifts that can work in everybody's, everybody's life and we need balance for it. But these gifts, even though people have abused it, even though the pendulum swung too far at one time, maybe 20 years ago, now we've swung it to the point where we, we don't even talk about it. Well, I'm going to get to the value of the gift, but here's what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and hold on to the good. I want you to know, and I can say this with confidence, that God uses leaders to shepherd flocks. He uses his under-shepherds. And the discernment gift can work in the body, but I know God speaks to everyone, but he doesn't speak to everyone about this flock the way he speaks to me in a corporate sense. I know he speaks to you, I don't doubt that. But if you pastored, he'd speak to you and not me that way. But he'll, he'll give you a corporate sense and discernments because if he puts you in some place, he backs you up. That's the bottom line. And so you have to walk in a spiritual authority. And I don't mean that just for me. I'm not getting cocky. I believe that for every church in this community if the gifts are gonna move. That pastors are supposed to lead and they're supposed to shepherd these gifts <clears throat> along. And the discernment, if they say stop, you should stop. If they should say that's not for now, you should trust them. And I'll speak to that again more next week when I talk about prophecy. So this gift is not evil, even though bad, dumb things have happened. It's good. It's in the Bible. It's for the common good. He said, I'll show you a more excellent way. And he was talking about these gifts being excellent when they're used properly. But it can cause trouble when people are left to their own to do whatever they want to do. I'm not for that in that corporate setting. Second thought today. This gift was given subsequent to salvation and frequently in the New Testament. A prayer language. Subsequent means after salvation. I've seen it where this gift will come to some people immediately after they're saved. But always, they come to Jesus, they make a confession. confession. You never get this gift of the Holy Spirit uh, before you're saved. It's always after. The Holy Spirit's in every believer's life. The Holy Spirit comes into your life the moment you make a confession to Christ and God's, in, God's Spirit is in every believer. And yet, God's Spirit does more work than just bring salvation. I don't want to argue that the Holy Spirit's in everybody's life. As a matter of fact, think of this. The gifts, miracles were happening before this baptism of the Holy Spirit showed up in the New Testament, right? They didn't speak in tongues. And... and and, and, and so the gifts moved even before, but only in a few. And then there was this massive release in the New Testament. And then we saw miracles at a much more rapid pace happening in the lives of all believers. Well, I, I, I know God works in people. And if you think, if you think I'm arrogant, because I speak in tongues. I have a personal uh, prayer devotional language. And it's been a great blessing in my life. I, uh, last year, when I was on my break, I went to, uh, to Solid Rock and visited there. And John Mark, a uh, great young man, John Mark Comer, preacher there, pastor there, I love him. Just a good young man. He spoke on this subject, and he speaks in tongues, and he said that publicly. He has a prayer language. And he said 50% of their pastors have a prayer language, and 40% of their elders. And so 
I, I, you know, this is not that out there. I just want you to know that there are people, there's a bunch of people here who have a prayer language, but I want you to know, I'm not here to tell you, you got to have a prayer language or go. I mean, you can, first of all, I, I know people who have prayer language that aren't near as mature in the Lord as people who don't. This gift that we're talking about today is a work of power that happens in our life, not necessarily wisdom and maturity. I mean, it, it's, it's like you're fighting a war and, the, and there's a guy who has a bazooka and, and he can be dumb and just stand up and jeopardize everybody by just firing away with, with no care or concern. And sometimes people with wisdom have to just trip him up and say, get your rear end down here, you're going to get us all hurt. And so there should never be any pride about the gifts because after all, whoever receives the gifts, they, they, I'm not the gift. The gift is the Lord. Anything we have, we walk with in humility because he gives it to us. And I know people who aren't filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't have a prayer language. And I think they know more of God than I do. And so I'm not trying to be cocky up here. I'm not trying to say I'm special. I'm not. I'm just saying he's more than you know. The Holy Spirit is more than any of us know, right? He does a work in salvation, but he does much more than just salvation. And here's a subsequent work that we see after salvation in the scriptures. So let's look at this. This will be an interesting passage to you, maybe. John 20, 21, Jesus has come back after rising from the dead. He meets the disciples and he speaks to them. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is significant because there's a teaching that many believe, and it says that the, the Holy Spirit did not come into the life of the apostles until the day of Pentecost. This is 40 days before the day of Pentecost. Jesus is praying over the disciples, the apostles, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question. Did they receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus said it, or was he foretelling about the day of Pentecost? Well, let's look at that. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the great writers of yesteryear, and he wrote this, and I want to read it to you. This is kind of a teaching. I need you to hang in there mentally. I like to preach more than teach. I'm, I'm, I'm wired that way more, the proclamation. But now we're going to get into some nitty-gritty details that I think we need to, to have understanding of this gift that the Lord has given. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. Let me be more specific. He's talking about this passage, John 20, 21, and 22. If you consult the learned and the authorities on the whole question of Greek grammar, and the meaning of the words, you will find that they are unanimous in saying that in the Greek, the word receive, when Jesus said receive the Holy Spirit to the disciples, receive in verse 22 is the aorist imperative. Now this is what aorist imperative means when you're interpreting the Greek in the New Testament. It means happens right now. It means absolutely happened. It is not ever in a future tense. And he says, and the authorities are also unanimous in saying that the Greek aorist imperative never has a future meaning. This is purely technical, uh, this point, he says, but a very important one. So many of our friends who hold to the other teaching that we are criticizing do so in terms of the Greek and the original. So let us meet them on their own ground. Here and again, I defy you, and this is not me speaking, but uh, it's Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here and again, I defy you to find a single exception. The authorities are all agreed in saying that the Greek aorist imperative never has a future meaning. And I would emphasize the word, he says, never. So you see, the very word that is used is a word that wants us to see that what we are told happened then did happen then. 
that when our Lord said to them, receive ye the Holy Spirit, they did receive the Holy Spirit. The very word that he used, I repeat, makes it impossible that he was uttering a prophetic utterance and preparing them for something that was going to happen. That ought to be enough in and of itself, he says, to get rid once and forever of that false view of Pentecost that that's the first time that the Holy Spirit showed up in the lives of the apostles. So, regeneration means salvation. In John 20, 21, when Jesus said to them, 40 days before the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit fell, where the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit did a work of salvation in John 21, 20 and 21, and he breathed into them and they received the Holy Spirit. Aorist imperative. Now, it happened then. And that was, that, I believe, the point of regeneration or salvation for those men that day. And then later, subsequently, he tells them this. After these things, he says to them in Luke, Uh, 24 up on your screen I'm going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high now he's talking about more work of the Holy Spirit power and empowerment Acts 2 4 we see what happened all of them I just want to I want you to notice all there I'll come back to that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled Let's look at another passage. You may have noticed this when you're reading sometime before in Acts 8. We can see the subsequent work. We can see salvation and the subsequent work of, this, of the Spirit to empower right after in Acts 8. Let's look at it. Verse 12, and when they believed Philip, Philip was an evangelist. He goes into this city. He's preaching the gospel. And as he preached the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. It says, and when they believed the good news that he preached, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So here's a question for you. Who among us would say that if someone says, I accept the word of God, the good news and the gospel, I believe in Jesus Christ, and they make that confession, and then they're baptized in water, which one of us will go to them and say, hey, you're not really saved? These people came to Jesus They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit or salvation came at that moment. But now, same story, end of the chapter, let's look at what the apostles do when they show up after Philip's preached and these people come to Jesus. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What? You mean they believed in Jesus Christ and they were baptized and they hadn't received the Holy Spirit? They'd received the Holy Spirit in the sense of salvation, but not in this work of empowerment or this baptism that we're speaking of today. You say, why do they call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus said, I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit on that day. So it's just taking that word and moving it to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that word from Jesus Christ. In verse 16, it says this. So, so, so prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. One of the things that Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, one of the great teachers in America, who also believes in this work that I'm telling you about today, Calvary Chapel believes that, that, that people can have a prayer language. Uh, he pointed out the difference in the Greek between the word en in the Greek, which is en, that's the way it is in the Greek, and epi, which is epi. In means the Holy Spirit comes in. That is a point of salvation. Epi means the Holy Spirit comes upon, and it's a different thing. 
And I want you to notice in this passage that it didn't say the Holy Spirit came into them. It says the word epi, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And Chuck Smith made that distinguishment about often the Spirit will fall in a work of power upon people when the Spirit has already done a work previously in people. So, um, that, that in mind, uh, it says this, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You see the beginning where they had this experience with Jesus and then they came and they prayed for this work that came upon in, in later on in the, in the chapter. Hang with me, man. I think this will bless your life if you can hang in there with me. I know it's a teaching and I, I, I'm not particularly entertaining, but we don't always need that because the word of God carries itself, right? So let it carry itself here as we move through this. First, they were saved and the Holy Spirit brought salvation. Then the subsequent work happened. Now let me tell you about my story for a moment. Um, I'm not asking everybody here to believe exactly what I believe. Nobody has perfect theology except for God. And uh, if you think you have perfect theology, you're very arrogant. And, and um, you know, I, I believe some things today that as a believer years ago, I didn't believe. I, I mean, we're all learning, growing, and becoming, right? And yet, I'm really pointing out some things that are truly in the scripture, right? I mean, this, this tongues thing is in there. I mean, you can skip it, but you really shouldn't because it's in there. And, 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 um, and then experientially, I'm not just speaking from experience, but experientially, uh, after, after seeing these words, let me, let me tell you what happened to me. I was raised in the Pentecostal Church of God, a little church where you had to put your tennis shoes on to get a good grip on the wall in the services. I mean, there was a lot of movement, and God even moved at times. But there was a lot of people, a lot of people movement that was taking on. And honestly, it turned me off as a kid. I was raised in it. I just thought there was a lot of fanfare and I didn't like it. And uh, so, so I'm not a guy who doesn't have a heritage in the spirit. I don't know what you guys think of me and gifts and I know you all have your own views and, and I respect that. But I, I know these works of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I've been in camps where hundreds of kids have been filled with this gift that we're talking, probably thousand in camps that I've directed through the years. And I don't say that proudly. I'm just saying I've, I've experienced, for those of you who think, well, maybe he doesn't know like I know. And yet I've seen just a bunch of stupid stuff. Just, you know, I remember one time a, a group of people in high school, and I was the Pentecostal church kid, you know, and, but they had this Lutheran guy come through, and he's talking about tongues, and he had 20 of these kids around, and I was one of them, like 17 years old. And he said, just say, you know, syllables and say A, B, C, D. And I just thought, this is stupid. You know, I mean, if it's God, God will do it, right? So all these kids are saying syllables, and I, I just don't want to do it, so I'm not. Everybody gathered around me like I was Joe Center, you know. What's the matter? And I go, well, I just, you know, I, this seems kind of weird to me. And they said, no, just try, just try. And it felt terrible. I just don't think we should do that to people, you know. We all got it, and you don't get it. Get it, brother, get it, you know. And it's forceful, and I don't like that. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't need our help to make stuff happen. The Holy Spirit can do good work all by himself. And then we can join in with it, right? That's, that's what I prefer. You won't believe what I did. I just started speaking out syllables and they all got excited and said, that's it, that's it. And I stopped and said, no, that's not it. I just made it up and I wanted you to know you wouldn't know it if you heard it. And then I left. <laughs> I'm not sure I would do that today, but I don't like things to be forced on me. I, I respect that you don't want it forced on you. I respect that. So 
I knew about these things and I thought they were in the scripture and I'd seen abuse, but I'd seen some real too, right? I'd, I'd, I, I saw some real stuff. I did see miracles growing up and I did see gifts move and, and I did see some genuine stuff for sure. And I'm married now and I don't have this tongues thing. I'm raised in this Pentecostal church and I didn't want the tongues thing. I mean, maybe, but, I, but not really. Kind of, but I'm scared, right? You feel that way sometimes? So Karen and I are married and we're at this huge gathering at the Coliseum and people are worshiping and it's just an awesome presence of the Lord when 10,000 people just, they slowed the music down, they just, the voices start. And somehow my mind goes to this prayer language thing and I just say to God, in the midst of a worship service, nobody's talking about tongues, nobody has any, any order other than what the Spirit is doing through worship at that time, much like we were worshiping a few moments ago. And I just say to the Lord in that moment, God, what is the deal with this? I don't get it. I'm a little bit afraid of it. I don't want it to be fake. Hey, I want to tell you something. If I'm into anything, I'm into authentic. And that's why fanfare, I don't want to, I don't want to create it. Because I think the Holy Spirit can do it. But I know the Holy Spirit does great stuff. Great stuff. And I, and I felt like the Lord quickened my heart in that setting and said, just speak out. It's right there. I'm, I'm a little bit afraid, right? I just want him to take hold of me and I, I don't know how it works, right? Maybe he just makes it happen. Did you know you can't talk unless your mind thinks about it and then you, and then you go? Well, you're gonna have to open your mouth to speak there and you're gonna have to open your mouth to have a prayer language too and let fly to some degree. So I reached out by faith all by myself in the midst of thousands when they didn't know and I thought, well, maybe I'll miss it but I'm gonna try. And a prayer language came out of me that was so fluent. I really couldn't believe it. I thought, holy cow. And the Spirit of God just touched me in an incredible way. And in that moment, I don't know how, but the Spirit of God quickened my heart to know that is it and that is real. And I'll speak to you in just a few moments about some things that changed in my life the very next day because I was different. And basically it was this. From that moment on, a passion rose up in me that wanted to preach the gospel when I hadn't wanted to preach it before. I'm not saying everybody gets this experience. I'm telling you my experience. And I was willing to not only live for Christ, from that moment on, I was willing to die for him. Now, it's not my wish to be a martyr, but if I have to be for the sake of cross, of the cross, I'm willing. Did you know in, the, in, the, in Acts, when it says, they receive the power to become witnesses, that that word witnesses translated in the Greek is martyrs. They receive the ability to be martyrs. There was such an empowerment and a boldness and a love. And, and, and there, when boldness comes, there still should be respect for people. I don't believe in jerkness. The Holy Spirit doesn't do jerkness. It just does boldness. And there's a love, but there's a grace and there's a truth. And, and I wasn't afraid to talk to people anymore. And I'll tell you about that in a few moments, I was willing to talk publicly about Jesus Christ and even be ridiculed for it from that point on. That was part of my experience. Well, look at the frequencies, the frequency rather that tongues happen with in the New Testament. Now, these accounts I'm gonna give you are accounts that was the initial reception. So, you know, the Holy Spirit fell many times in, the, in, in Acts in the New Testament. You can see the Spirit falling when there are already been believers and they've already experienced what I'm talking about. 
but an initial reception, here's where you see tongues attached to it here. So let's take a look at it. Uh, frequency in the New Testament. I already spoke about the 120 on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God fell and all of them began to speak in tongues. Uh, the Samaritans, uh, Acts 8. Now let me point something out to you. I've never heard anyone else do this teaching, but I, but I, know, I know it's a good teaching because I, I, um, I, I actually know more stuff than I, than I share with you every week. And I, I can come across as pretty dumb, but uh, um, at times, you know, people think of athletes that way. That shouldn't be, coach. There's a, there's a guy with a master's in education and a coach too. So you know intelligence and athlete goes together, right? You're a good example of that. Uh, but, but I want to speak at a level where people can understand, so I'm not, I'm not really interested with impressing you. I just want you to get information that will fill your heart with God's, with God's truth. So, so I, I don't always uh, try to let intellect be the thing I lead with. I try to be led by the Spirit of God, but that's not devoid of intellect. And let me show you something. This, this is the Samaritans in Acts 8. Um, <clears throat> you, I read the first part of the chapter where the Spirit of God has come and made them believers. And then I read you the second part of the, that chapter where the apostles showed up and say, hey, they haven't, the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them yet. There's that second word, sub, subsequent. So let's pray for them again, and they received. Now, there is a really weak translation in the Greek in this passage. And I want, you to, I want to point it out to you. Do you remember Simon the sorcerer? He did magic. He got lots of money for it. He watched this gift, this baptism of the Holy Spirit come upon people. And he, he saw something in Acts 8. So this is the middle that I didn't share with you before. He saw something that made him want the gift. Now, it probably wasn't them just standing there and receiving and, and just something physical happened. Something happened in such a way where he said, hey, I want this gift. He noticed something. So what was that something, right? Did they speak in tongues? What was that visible thing that made the sorcerer who, who had bad motives because he wanted to get it to make more money, what made him want it? Look what it says in um, Acts 8.21. The apostles hear this sorcerer say this and they know his motives and they say, you will have no share in this ministry. I want to talk to you about the word ministry for a moment because your heart is not right before God. <clears throat> the Englishman's concordance will show you Greek words in every place in the New Testament that that Greek word is translated. This word that's translated ministry here, if you look it up in the Englishman's Concordance, uh, it's translated approximately 350 times in the New Testament. The only place that uses the word ministry, and some of your versions say matter for the translation, the only place that has that translation out of 350 times is the passage I just read to you. You'll have no part in this ministry. Now let's look at what that Greek word means for a moment, ministry. I'm still talking about this prayer language, believe it or not, but it says, he, he, the word is logos. Logos means word or words. And it's translated ministry or matter. Look at, I have it on the screen for you. When it's translated these 350 times, here's how it's translated. 181 times word in the New Testament. This is that Greek word that, that's translated ministry. But in other scriptures, that same word is translated word. 56 times words, 43 times sayings, 17 times sayings. Or, or, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a repeat there. I think we had a, it should be another word there. Eight, eight times speech, seven times account, and four times utterance. Now, here's the, the word logos, the definition from the Thayer's Greek Dictionary. It's defined this way. Now, think of what's translated as matter or ministry in that passage. What was this thing that he saw? And here it is. The very first definition of that word logos means of speech, a word uttered by a living voice. 
that is a really weak translation to put ministry in there. I think, you know, the original is what's inspired by God, not the interpretation of the original, right? I mean, we, we sometimes read the message like that's, that's a paraphrase of the Bible. The living Bible is a paraphrase. It's not, it's not even a translation of the Bible. And there are good translations, the New King James, the NIV, but they don't always get the original right. And the original says, of speech, a word uttered, the second definition is of, is of the sayings of God. So if we take the first and second definition, that would read more like this. You will have no part or share in this ministry of speech, a word uttered, the sayings of God. That's kind of interesting, right? Have you, ever, have you ever had anyone point that out to you before? And that shows you that something happened. And my, my belief is that it's not a good translation from the King James or some of these other versions, but the Greek has it right in its original definition. It's, it's this, this speech uttered, these sayings of God. You'll have no part of this because you have a, an evil motive and you, you don't even know God, they were saying to the sorcerer. Well, interesting thought. You can see that perhaps that prayer language showed up in that setting too. And it looks like it did to me. And then the Apostle Paul. I'm just showing you where it's in the New Testament. He was filled with the Spirit. And later we, we heard him say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Almost sounds cocky, but it's not because it's in, it's in the Bible. And he was trying to say to some people who think they're spiritual, look, you're no more spiritual than, than the rest of God's servants. And yet when he was filled, we see later that he had a prayer language. And then the Gentiles in Acts 10, 44. Uh, when Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Now notice it said all earlier in the passage. I'm gonna come back to all. All and one, uh, when one, in Acts, when the 120, when the prayer room, all, all of them, the Holy Spirit fell upon. And, and then here, all again. And, and then you can see the next one, the disciples at Ephesus in Acts 19, there were 12 men. And, and it, it appears that it, that spirit fell on all of them in this way too. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied and there were about 12 men in all. Now, what I hope you can see is that it's really in the Bible a lot. Some people say, well, Acts is not to be taught from. This is a theological division among people in the church. Acts, they will say, is narrative, which means it's a story and you're not supposed to use it for doctrine. Well, what did Timothy say about the scriptures? Is Acts part of the scriptures? It says all scripture is profitable for doctrine, doctrine, right? Correction, instruction. So if all scripture is profitable for doctrine, then this is profitable. And by the way, it's not going to talk about tongues in the gospels because Jesus said, I'll send you the Holy Spirit after I leave. So that's when it came and that's what Acts and some of these other, uh, the, the other books of the Bible start, start to speak of. And what I hope I'm doing is causing you at least to see this is in the Bible. You may not be totally with me and, and I, hey, I give you permission. I'm not sure I got totally all right, but I'm telling you something. I'm sharing from experience and a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. And I don't mean that in a cocky way. What I mean is, once I was filled with the Spirit and once I started to see some of these things, I could see in light of the experience where the Scripture shares this light, sheds light on these things. Well, I, I, I hope I'll at least elevate um, this in such a way where you can see, you know what, we shouldn't just throw it out. 
there's worthy, it's a worthy biblical experience. And irrespective of whether it's the initial physical evidence, I'm a, an Assembly of God minister licensed, and that is the terminology the Assemblies of God uses, and people just get hung up on that. Initial physical evidence, what it means to me is that was physically what happened on a regular basis when the Holy Spirit fell and came upon Epi in those settings. And if you can't get there where you say, well, that has to happen, here's where I'd like us all to at least maybe give some admission, is that it happened on a regular basis. Perhaps we can't say it happened every time, but it was normative that it would happen when the Spirit fell. It was normal. That, that is a theological word that's used among scholars that when it happens on a regular basis, it's called normative in the New Testament. This is normative for sure in the New Testament that it was, that it was normal that you would see this follow immediately after the Holy Spirit came upon. And um, I, I think irrespective of whether it's the initial physical evidence, a personal prayer language has a dynamic and valuable benefit. Okay, I'm going long today. Hang with me. I'm gonna try to wrap it up quickly. I didn't feel like I could talk about this unless I did it comprehensively. I felt like I had to have a flow to get through this because I know some people are really wondering, are these things true? Third thought now, and I'll try to move quickly. A personal prayer language has, val- has value for our spiritual lives. So why would you wanna do this? Why would you wanna have a personal prayer language? Let me first differentiate between public and personal use of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.29 says this, Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And people will say, well, everybody can't speak in tongues, or it wouldn't say, do all speak in tongues? Well, first of all, I think it's an obvious uh, revelation that, that not everybody speaks in tongues. But I want to point out something to you that you might not have seen and it's where I think people go astray with that passage. That passage in 1 Corinthians is talking about gifts that are given publicly for the body of Christ. Think of this. Do you think that passage is saying that healing can't happen with us if we don't have the gift of healing? Do all have the gift of healing? Does that mean some get it and the rest of us don't? Well, I'm here to tell you, I know for a fact that the gifts will work in all of our lives, every one of them, at times. If you're on an island and there's two people and there's no gift of healing and God wants to bring healing, he can bring it through his believers. He doesn't need Benny Hinn to show up. He doesn't need whoever your favorite evangelist is because the gift is him. But he will give a special gift in a special way to some for the sake of the body of Christ. And there's a difference between this public usage that's for the body of Christ spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 and we can see are all, are all apostles. What's he saying? The apostles are given what? As a gift to the body of Christ with this gift of spiritual leadership. And the body of Christ will get this gift too. An interpretation, that's something so the body would know. We'll talk about that next week. So here's, here's what I hope you can see. The public use ministers to the corporate body. Right? But the personal use ministers to the individual believer. And that's where I want to segue to now. What's it mean for you? What's it mean for you? You can, you can see the designation between public and private in 1 Corinthians 14, 28. But if there's no interpreter, let him be silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So someone who's given a tongue, if there's no interpreter, <clears throat> if it's not for pub, the public or someone's not present that can interpret that, be silent and speak to yourself. Now here's, 
this is not normal in Pentecostal ranks, and I, I probably would, you know, that's where people want to put me in. I prefer just to be called a Christian, and, you know, I'm trying to see what the New Testament says. But, but I don't agree with some of my brothers who believe that, that, you know, that we should just massively speak in tongues in a public setting. It says, if there's no interpreter, if it's not for the church, be silent and speak to yourself. Why? Because it's not for everybody else. It's just for you and God. And it says in another passage in Corinthians, will not people come in and say you're crazy when they don't get it? Better to prophesy because then they'll fall on their faces knowing what's been said and how the Spirit of God is moving. And I, now I think you can speak in a service in your prayer language, but you don't have to do it in a way that it's distracting. You don't have to do it in a way where even your neighbor hears you. The point is there's a personal value for you that you would want to have, and if it's not for public, then don't let it come forward in a public fashion. That's different than some people believe, but it, looked, it seems pretty clear to me. And that passage, be silent and speak to yourself. Now, if it's all believers who know this stuff, that's cool, you know, in a small setting. If it's a massive reception, that's different, right? We saw that they all received in a public setting, but that was upon the point of reception. But as far as public services, be silent and speak to yourself because we've got more to do than just show people how spiritual you are on Sunday morning. And you may not even have that motive, but you need to be careful, and these gifts need to be pastored, as I said earlier. So the public and private use distinguished there, I believe that all people can have a personal prayer language, but not all people will have that public gift that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 for the body. You say, well, why would you say that? Well, let me, let me hearken back. On the day of Pentecost, all of them were filled and spoke in tongues. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, I wish you all spoke in tongues. Why would he say that? Um, in Acts 19, they were filled, and it says that all of them spoke in tongues and prophesied. In 1 Corinthians 10, that we read earlier, the Gentiles, it said they were all filled with the Spirit, and they heard them speaking in tongues. So I'm not that far off. I mean, if you, you know, we, we could argue. I don't want to argue. I really don't. You know a lot. You may know more than me, but I'm telling you some truth today. Comprehensively, there's some good truth in here somewhere. It's real. It's good. It's been abused, yes, but when it works properly, it's a tremendous blessing in the life of the believer in this personal prayer language sense. Now, let me read to you ways that this gift will bless you personally, having a personal prayer language. A, courage and power to become witnesses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon, there it is again, epi, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when I received that prayer language that night in the Colosseum here in Portland, the very next day, I went and witnessed to basketball players, I was still in college, that didn't know Jesus, that were on my team. I hadn't witnessed to them in two years, and the next day, I shared with three guys that didn't know the Lord. Something caught fire with me. Something was compelling me to share, and I didn't care so much what they thought about me. I still loved them, and I wanted them to respect me, and I wanted to bless them. But the thing I found was not only did I share, but they were receptive. It's like questions were coming and I was ready. And two of those guys eventually came to Jesus. Well then, not only that, how about you look at the life of Peter when you speak of this work of power coming upon them. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what Jesus said. 
Peter couldn't even talk to a little maiden girl, scared to death, hanging around the fire, and she said, I know you, you're one of them. He said, no, and he cursed and ran. He had no courage whatsoever. This is one of the apostles. And then, after the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost, and he's one of those guys that has a prayer language, he goes out boldly to proclaim to thousands in a public setting, and he's not afraid anymore. And he articulately gives this message of the good news of Jesus, and 3,000 people are saved that day. Wow. There is something of power that takes place. Let's go to B now. Praise that is perfected, Acts 2.11. And we hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things of God. So that on that day, they were speaking in languages that some of the people that weren't saved heard and they recognized as their own languages, even though these people didn't know their languages. And I, thought, I find it funny that, that they said they're drunk. Oh, really? Getting drunk will help you speak in a language you never knew previously. That's amazing. I've always thought it made you dumber, not smarter when you got drunk. But, but I, mean, I mean, they can't explain it because it's a God thing. But it was wonderful praise. So when you, how's it, how's it, What's it do for you? There's wonderful praise that can come from you with that personal prayer language. Acts 10, 46. And there could be no doubt about it for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Perfected praise. The wonderful things of God. Praise of God. And honestly, I don't, know, I don't think I'm that poetic, right? So when I try to string something together about praise for God, it, it, it sounds like a five-year-old sometimes. You're awesome. I love you, praise your name, you know. And how far can you go? And yet, when I pray in a prayer language, there's some sort of release and praise to God where the Spirit prays through that, that even builds me up and, 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 and that praise somehow blesses God. Prayer that is perfected. That's, that's C. How's it bless you? Your prayers can be perfected. And, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress. For we don't know, we do not even know what we should pray for nor how we should pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be expressed in words. Sometimes I get discouraged and I'll have a depressing thought and I won't even feel like praying. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Sometimes I don't know how to pray. You know, sometimes I'm just a whiny little baby and I, I can't believe God puts up with me. You know, God, why are you allowing this like he's messing up? But you know, we can slip into that at times. But when I pray in my prayer language and I don't know, I don't even know what to do. I had a mother say to me after first service that her son was deployed into a country where he's in special ops and he's undercover. She can't hardly stand it when he comes home and leaves again. She said, Pastor, I don't even know how to pray. The only way I can get through it is to pray in my prayer language. Somehow God shows up and he starts perfecting even the prayer and settling our hearts down and, and somehow we come out of it with peace and even perspective and perhaps a plan because his spirit starts to work in our spirits. And then this last part is really uh, an accumulation of the first three and, and it's really the thing that should be noted mostly. God strengthens you and builds you up as a believer personally when you, when you pray in your prayer language. 1 Corinthians 14.4, a person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally or in some of your versions of the Bible, it says edified. And, and that, that's, the, that's the King James. What does that mean, to be strengthened personally? Here's the Greek definition of that word that you've heard translated here in the NLT, strengthened personally, and the King James edified. Edify means this. What happens for you when you pray in this language? 
The first definition of edify is to build a house, to erect a building, to build, to restore, to repair. What? When you pray in a prayer language, your own, not this public usage thing, you're strengthened personally, and God builds you up, restores you, and repairs you. That's what the word means. That's pretty cool. That's something that's been a, a blessing to me. And again, I, if, if, there's been, if there's been any thought of arrogance, man, I really want to walk in humility because I, I don't, I am not the gift. These are gifts available to everybody. These are things that are real. Some people say, well, don't you know what makes people feel bad? Well, all I would say about that is, isn't that true about telling people who don't know Jesus about Jesus too? Do we, do we not say truth because someone else might not like it or do we speak truth with grace as, as the Bible does, as Jesus did? I, it's not that you're less, it's that he's more. It's not that, uh, it, it's not that you're more mature, it's just that there really is something to it to bless your life. A personal prayer language is a tremendous blessing to the believer. Charles Finney, I want to end with this testimony. I'm sorry for going long. I do it every time after vacation. I will be on the money next week, I promise you. Shorter, I mean. But let me read you the testimony of Charles Finney, who was a lawyer and a great man of intellect. Born in 1792, Finney's earliest desire was to become a lawyer, which he fulfilled by studying and working in offices. But God had another direction for his plan and his life. Finney would become a preacher that would have an amazing impact. No other person has influenced the subject of revival in America like Charles Grandison Finney. This is in the 1800s when he rose to prominence as an evangelist. His life and ministry spanned continents. In America, Finney was considered the father of modern revivalism with over 500,000 conversions resulting from his ministry. In the 1800s, the population was way less in America than it is now. And 500,000 came to Christ because of this man. Finney's testimony is, uh, is of marked significance because of the remarkable intellect of this man. His theological writings are the product of a mind alert, alive, and aglow. Yet in his words, he describes the personal breakthrough in his own experience in which the Holy Spirit swept over him with baptizing power. V. Raymond Edmond, the president of Wheaton College, which isn't exactly Pentecostal, wrote this account from Finney's words. It was a report in his book called They Found the Secret. So the president of Wheaton College relays the story this way. Returning one day from an interview, Finney entered his office and without any preliminary expectation that such a moment should seize him, he remembers, as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. This is Charles Finney speaking. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words, he said, can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love, 
And I do not know, but I should say, I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushing of my heart. These waves came over me and over me, one after the other, until I recollect I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear any more. Yet I had no fear of death, Finney says. I soon fell asleep, and when I awoke in the morning, the sun had risen and was pouring a clear light into my room. Words cannot express the impression that this sunlight made upon me. Instantly, the baptism that I received that night before returned upon me in the same manner. I arose from my knees and in my bed and wept aloud with joy and remained for some time too much overwhelmed with the baptism of the Spirit to do anything but pour out my soul to God. It seemed as if the morning's baptism was accompanied with a gentle reproof. Now catch this. This man with great intellect, this totally spiritual dude before he has this experience, says this. It seemed as if the Spirit said to me, will you doubt? Will you doubt? I cried, no, I will not doubt. I cannot doubt. He then cleared the subject up much to my mind that it was in fact impossible for me to doubt the Spirit of God had taken possession of my soul. Charles Finney's account in the 1800s. Listen, uh, some of that physical stuff that he was experiencing isn't normative in the Bible, but it makes sense uh, that, that God will give you a, you know, even there'll even be some physical reaction from time to time. You put your finger in a light socket where there's power, you're gonna have a reaction. And sometimes God has power too. And there'll be some reactions. I don't think we should elevate those to normative because they're not in the Bible. We make too big, I remember in camps, uh, we'd have kids that were falling over and they say slain in the spirit and people would say, we need catchers. I go, no, we're not having catchers. They go, well, they could hurt themselves. I go, look, if they're in the spirit, they're not gonna hurt themselves. If they're not, let them get a bump on their head. Because we want real, right? And so it's physical reaction, fine, but we're not gonna elevate that. But we can say that these normative things in the Bible we've spoken of today are good and will bless our lives.